pray together. Father, it is our desire to know you fully, powerfully, wonderfully, to know you in the fullness of the way that you would show us how to have a living relationship with you through your word, by your spirit. You're such a good God. Thank you for the privilege of gathering this morning and setting our hearts and minds together to worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you for the words to these songs that have been sung, to the scripture that's been read, to the laughter and connections that have been made in the fellowship already this morning and will be made even as we linger today after the service. We're grateful. We love you. We need you. Speak to our hearts from your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter number five. I have been looking forward to this for some time. I certainly enjoyed our time together this summer as we were really making much of the text that we were studying in our Bible study groups and, and then using that same text for our, our sermon times. It was a wonderful time where we were all kind of saturating and, and spending quite a bit of time with the text. I love that. Please keep doing that um, even though we've moved away from that model for sermon. We're going to take uh, Grace Covenant's legacy is expository preaching. We have that on our webpage and maybe you saw that word and you thought that's a Really interesting word there. I have no clue what that means. Uh, it, it basically means we, we come to the Bible and let the Bible set the text and the tone for us. And so we're going to be preaching from Matthew 5 through Matthew 8 and some change as we preach the Sermon on the Mount. I've entitled the series Counter-Cultural. That's, uh, that's really what it's calling us to live, a counter-cultural life in this world in which we live. We, the Lord celebrates things that are completely different from what culture celebrates. And, and we see that this morning in a big way. Everywhere that Jesus goes, he brings the kingdom of heaven with him. Everywhere that he goes. People from all lands and all walks of life are impacted by his actions and by his words. And if we look at the verses right before Matthew 5 and Matthew 4, we catch that glimpse of what's going on in Jesus' ministry all throughout Galilee. In Matthew 4, I've got it on the screen for you. You have it in your Bibles just right before our text this morning. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so his fame spread throughout all of Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. No wonder his fame spread. The earthly ministry of our precious Lord was established by his incredible works, and it was sustained by his incredible words. People like to quote parts of what Jesus says because never a man spoke such as this and, and who is this man that even the winds and waves obey his voice. People love quoting part of the scriptures, don't they? 
President Biden recently used a quote from Isaiah out of context, as many presidents and pastors often do, in an effort to use biblical words to describe the service of our wonderful servicemen and women. Now, I shared a well-written piece from Breakpoint Ministries on social media this week. Feel free to avail yourself to that. I won't cover it here, but it addressed it well. In 1978, President Jimmy Carter brokered a Middle East peace agreement between Egypt and Israel, between the Egyptian President Anwar Sadat and the Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin. In the address before a joint session of Congress on September the 18th, he closed by looking at his two friends face to face and saying these words, ready? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be the children of God. That's kind of weird for a Christian to say that to a Muslim and a Jew after brokering a peace deal. <laughs> They're understandable words, I guess, to be sure, because they were talking about making peace. They sound good, but they are ripped violently out of context, and they're misapplied. The Bible doesn't tell us that to become children of God, we should make peace with others, which was what was inferred in that use. No, peacemaking is a characteristic of God's children, those who have entered his family by adoption through faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, to become a child of God, the Bible says in John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God. In Galatians 3, the Bible says, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through him. So we don't become children of God by doing stuff, even stuff that's in the Bible out of context. We become children of God because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and we come recognizing that that is sufficient. We put our faith and trust in Him. We, as the Spirit is moving in us, repent of our sins and fall on Jesus. Context matters. Context matters. Some people read the Sermon on the Mount and specifically the Beatitudes like we read this morning and think, okay, as long as I do these things, I'll be right with God and surely I'll make it to heaven. In fact, there are a couple errors, a couple cautions I'd like for you to observe as we read and you study this passage over the coming weeks, all of the Sermon on the Mount. There are two ways to read it wrong. Number one, it's not a list of requirements to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus was teaching this material to those who had already responded to the call to follow him. You say, Pastor, how do you know that? Well, look at verse 1. It says, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, verse 2, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Secondly, this is not an idealistic description of the way of life uh, and the way life will function when God has fully established his kingdom here on earth either during the millennial reign of Christ or when the whole earth is, is made new, so to speak. You, you see what I'm saying? This is not that. Why? Well, how can you say it's not that? Well, because somebody strikes somebody on the cheek and it says turn the other cheek. And I'm pretty sure we're not assaulting each other in our glorified bodies. So that doesn't work. That doesn't jive. So what is it then? <laughs> what do we do with this? Well, the Sermon on the Mount, listen carefully, describes how those who have already decided to follow Jesus demonstrate the character of God and his kingdom by living life. This is for us. It's a good recalibration for us. 
St. Augustine referred to this Sermon on the Mount as the perfect standard of the Christian life. Not everybody sees it that way, though. The renowned German philosopher Nietzsche with contempt described the Sermon on the Mount as the source of slave morality. Ayn Rand, author of Atlas Shrugged, is recorded as saying, this is the prescription, she regards the prescriptions uh, as among the vilest ever uttered. She also regards Christian morality as poison to be avoided at all costs. Mahatma Gandhi said of the Sermon on the Mount, it went straight to his heart. We're about to enter into the teachings of Christ. He's called them to a mountain, which we believe in modern day is the Mount of Beatitudes. Now, it probably wasn't called that at the time. I don't imagine Jesus said, hey, let's go to the Mount of this Latin word that hasn't been invented yet, and I'll teach something here, and we'll call it that. That's not the way that works. If you ever go to Israel, the stuff wasn't named that. Like, when you go see the tomb of Lazarus, when Lazarus was buried, there wasn't a sign up that said, the tomb of Lazarus, right? Then you go down. Just Like, it took me a minute to catch up once I got there, but... We've sat, my wife and I have sat on the Mount of Beatitudes and read together the Sermon on the Mount. Beautiful time. He pulls them together and when Jesus preached and taught, I know some of you are watching your clock, don't worry. Um, <clears throat> won't be as long as last week. Um, but we're, uh, Jim, that was for you if you're watching. So while you're, um, while you're watching your clock, I want you to know you can read the Sermon on the Mount in 10 minutes. And you're like, man, it takes our pastor forever. And he didn't say anything, much worth of anything. And Jesus did this in 10 minutes. Well, you need to know that Jesus probably likely preached for two hours. And it wasn't because he preached very slowly. Blessed are, like the sloths on that little Disney flick. One of my favorite characters. So that's not, um, that's not how this worked, but these are condensed, congealed, um, a distillation of his teaching. It's compacted theology of Christ. Each phrase in this sermon can bear the weight of an expository sermon per phrase. It really can. It's a penetrating section of God's word. It's been called an antidote to the pretense and sham that plagues modern Christianity. R. Kent Hughes writes, as we expose ourselves to the x-rays of Christ's words, we see the degree of the authenticity of our Christian living. Wow. Well, that's enough of the mechanics of it. Let's dive into it. You'll notice as we work through it, though, it's very similar to the Mosaic Law. There's some beautiful parallels here. In fact, the first half of these, it's been said, deal with the focus of our relationship on God. The second half, deal with the focus of our relationship on our fellow men. The Beatitudes start in verse 3 and end with that, the kingdom of God. Theirs is the kingdom of God, and it ends with theirs is the kingdom of God. And when you see that kind of writing in Hebrew, that means everything in the middle pertains to those things. They're like bookends for that. We're talking about the kingdom of God. Let's deal with the first word that Jesus said, shall we? Blessed or blessed. What does blessed mean? What comes to your mind when you think of blessed? When you hear someone is blessed, what do you think of? Does it mean healthy, wealthy, and powerful as some modern day teachers are saying that it means? Does it mean happy? Not really. It doesn't really mean any of those. I had a coworker one time who said to me, you asked the question, how are you doing today? And she said, oh, I'm blessed and highly favored. And in a moment of, hmm, I'm not sure, snarkiness, sanctified snarkiness, is that a thing? I don't know. 
I said, be careful the last woman that said that wound up giving a birth to a baby in a stable with donkeys and stuff standing around her. I don't, you know, come on. Blessed and highly favored? Um, she didn't appreciate that, and I apologize for my sanctified snarkiness. But does blessed mean happy and you've got it all together? Well, not really. This word blessed, as it's used here, uh, means a positive judgment by God on the individual. It means to be approved or to find approval. When Jesus is saying blessed, he's saying approved. Wow. Can you take a moment and process that? You. Sinful you that had to delete that email twice before you sent it this week or the text. Sinful me. God says we can be blessed, approved by God. How in the world? Well, the only way we could ever stand before a holy God is in, by, and through the finished work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's it. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Blessed. The Beatitudes, even the whole Sermon on the Mount, point us to the only hope that we have to be reconciled to God and to live as true ambassadors. I said it means God's approval. Whose approval are you the most concerned about in life? Coworkers? Your friends? Classmates? Students? Your families? Your followers? Or God's? Let's look at verse three together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, you're going to notice a progression here as we move through these. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Our attitude toward ourselves. What does this mean, poor in spirit? Now, in the Sermon on the Plain, where Jesus taught in Luke, you see blessed are the poor. Matthew here is including this incredible phrase, poor in spirit. What's he talking about here? Blessed are the poor in spirit. It means that we have a right understanding. Our attitude of ourselves is based on God's word. We understand that we are desperately in need of what Christ has to offer. We cannot figure this thing out on our own. We don't have it made in the shade. We can't get it done, all right? We need Jesus. We're bankrupt spiritually. We have nothing spiritual to produce. There is a rise in spirituality and a decline in Christianity statistically in this nation. Why? Because we believe if left to our own devices as a nation, we can figure this thing out spiritually and try all the things. Nope, nope. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. We have a correct view of our own condition apart from Christ and we recognize that Christ needs to be in us and through us, the poor in spirit. Next verse. Blessed are they who mourn, those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Just take a moment and look at this verse. Those who mourn. Wow. Is this simply a promise of comfort to those who are grieving? Well, let me tell you this. Our family has grieved in the past several weeks. Other families in this room have grieved in the past recent weeks and months. We as a church body have grieved together over the past couple of years. And certainly there is comfort from the Lord as we grieve the loss of loved ones. Is it just that though? Is there a spiritual dimension to this? Is it grief over our sin? Is our attitude towards sin a, a, a pure and true sorrow over sin? Well, 
here's the beauty of it. The way that it's written, the way that it's recorded, the words that Christ used, it, it can be both of those things. I appreciate R.C. Sproul's notes on this, his encouragement, though, not to just restrict it to those two words and to recognize that it can also be in light of the persecution that's just around the corner in this sermon. It could very well point to the mourning that's a result of our own persecution or a deep connection with those around the world who are suffering because they are Christ's. Whatever the case, Although we are a people full of joy, unspeakable joy, glorified joy, we are also a people who identify with Jesus, whom Isaiah said was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We mourn together when we hurt. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Number three, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What does it mean to be meek? It rhymes with weak, and I know that's been preached 57 ways to Sunday. I got it, but it's not what it means. We live in a culture that doesn't celebrate meekness at all. We like to read about it in others, but it just doesn't get celebrated in the marketplace, certainly. But this has to deal with our attitude toward ourselves in relation to others. We understand that we need to be teachable. We don't defend ourselves when we are wrong I found this definition especially helpful. See if this helps you. Meekness is the humble strength that belongs to the man or woman that has learned to submit to difficulties because they recognize God is working all things together for our good. The humble strength to submit to the difficulties, recognizing that God is working all things together for our good whether it's difficult experiences or circumstances, or take a deep breath, this one stings a little bit, or difficult people. Not that any of you are around any difficult people in life. No? Just me. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Our attitude toward God is expressed. We receive his righteousness, of course, by faith. And we have that because the Lord is gracious to give us that as we ask for Jesus. That's what happens. But I want you to notice, he did not say, blessed are those whose goal is righteousness, for they shall attain their goal. He he didn't say, blessed are those who have a desire for righteousness, for they will get their heart's desire. No, he spoke in everyday terms of hunger and thirst we're not simply to seek righteousness or to have righteousness as a goal we're to hunger and thirst after righteousness if you follow me to my house you will find in our miller party of seven that dinner time or lunch time is a special time you will also find if you were a fly on the wall that within just a matter of sometimes minutes rarely greater than two hours after a meal to which I probably need to be wheeled away from the table from, somebody will utter these words, I'm hungry, what's for snack, right? You're like, we just, like, you, you still have grilled chicken in your teeth right there, uh, right? What are you, that's just the way it works. I got growing boys. I've got growing family. That's just the way life is. 
But this is not talking about some futile thing, like some fruitless episode. This is not written in the theme song, I can't get no satisfaction, right? Because I try and I try and I try. That's not what this is. We're talking about here a hunger and thirst. We are hungry for Jesus, so we feast on the bread of life. We're hungry for Jesus, so we drink from the fountain of living water, and we're satisfied because of Jesus. You're not satisfied by looking at all the churches around you, trying to keep up with them, trust me. You're not satisfied by keeping your eyes fixed on everybody or, or staying glued to that feed, trying to tri- figure out what's hot right now. That's not going to bring satisfaction in your life. You know the truth. It's quite the contrary. But we're satisfied when we fix our eyes on Jesus. You've got to get in the Word to do that. You've got to spend time in the Word of God, hunger and thirsting for Him. Now, the rest of the Beatitudes show the result of this new life in the believer. Let me say this. There are a couple ways to preach this. Uh, you could take a sermon. I mean, you could probably do two or three sermons per Beatitude. I'm choosing to do them all together on purpose so you can see the full impact of this kingdom living. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Merciful. Are you described as merciful? A forgiving spirit, a love for others, being merciful, watch this, immediately cures bitterness. It's actually a, insert modern word here, vaccine against bitterness. If you regularly practice mercy, it will keep you from becoming bitter. It's a well understood by a 19th century preacher in England who happened across a friend whose horse had just been accidentally killed. So he walks up and he sees all these people standing around. This horse is laying there dead and and people are all expressing sympathy. Oh, we're so sorry your horse died. Oh, we're so sorry your horse died. The preacher recognized they were empty words of sympathy. So he went up to the loudest guy talking about how sorry he was for this horse dying and he said, I'm sorry five pounds worth. How sorry are you? And he took his hat off and passed around a collection. (laughs) Mercy requires action. It's not just clicking like or sharing a post. It's not just saying, oh, bless their hearts. We're good at doing that in the South, aren't we? Right? Sometimes we say that right before we tear somebody down. Now, you know, bless her heart. She's she's lovely, but I got to tell you, right? That's not what I'm talking about. It's not just saying, oh, somebody ought to do something. And the Lord's in heaven going, hey, you're a somebody. Mercy requires action. Mercy demands action. Aren't you grateful that God was merciful toward us and he showed it by sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. We keep our lives clean and pure. We don't willingly get down in the mud or the dirt. We don't celebrate a culture of death. We choose to participate in things very intentionally, and we choose not to participate in some cultural norms because we're different, y'all. Purity is something we have to really work toward, isn't it? You've got to say no to some things and turn off some of the feeds in order to keep your mind 
pure. Now the purity that comes in our hearts, the Lord washes us clean. The Bible talks about us walking with the Lord and his blood continually cleanses us and I'm so thankful for that. But we as the people of God live in such a way that it looks like we're trying to keep our lives clean. Holiness is happiness to us and we don't want any substitutes. God is more concerned with your heart Those who are pure in heart receive an incredibly glorious promise here. Here's what it says. We shall see God, not just in heaven, but we get to see him move in the lives of others. We get to see him move in our own life. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 16, the Lord doesn't see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Matthew 12, 34, Jesus reminding us of the scripture, for out of the abundance of the heart, man speaks. In a couple weeks, we'll come to some radical purity here as it deals with the lust of the eye, right? He talks about looking at somebody and thinking certain things about him. That's how radical our purity should be. But in light of the fact that our Jesus is coming back soon, He's coming back soon to call the church away in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in light of that expectation that we have that Christ is coming back for his bride. John wrote these words, everyone who has that hope of his return purifies himself even as he is pure. Blessed are the pure in heart. Verse nine, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. Christians should bring peace between those who are at odds with each other's, other rather. We should be peacemakers. I gotta tell you, in a house full of, with five kids, we're grateful for the peacemakers, yes? We're grateful when, when somebody makes peace. Hallelujah, right? That's a character trait we celebrate regularly. Miss Christie, as she's um, giving care and direction to 20 Faith, Hope, and Love students, that's how many we have in our Faith, Hope, and Love program, I believe, signed up for this next semester. Praise God for that. Uh, By the way, those of you watching online or even in here, there's probably still room for a mentor or several. Uh, And Pastor D covered that a few weeks ago beautifully. But Christy, as she's doing that, I bet she's grateful at times for the peacemakers. Right, when somebody says, whoa, 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 whoa. That's, that's certainly what this is talking about, but I want to push you a little bit further and remind you that the only way that we can have the peace of God is to have peace from God, and the only way we get peace from God is to have peace with God, according to Romans 5. God sent his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are in a war-torn world We should be so concerned with the peace between people and God that it causes us to share the gospel and the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. With evangelism as a priority, peacemaking involves pointing others to the ultimate peacemaker, the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, this morning, the last beatitude in this preamble to the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I've just put verse 10 on the screen. Verses 11 and 12 really back that up and underscore that. I want you to notice just a couple of things on this very clearly. It doesn't say, blessed are the harassed because of their stand during the pandemic. It, did that, no, that didn't go, okay. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Hmm. 
In verse 11, Jesus says, Blessed are you when people will utter, revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. This is Jesus stuff here. It's not a political position, anything like that. That's not what's being discussed here. Jesus is saying, blessed are you when, when you name the name of Christ, it costs you something. We see this unfolding around us all over the globe. We've been sitting these out in the lobby for you to grab on the way out. It's just a way to focus your prayers over the course of the week. They're different each week, by the way. This week in our uh, little praying for the world, we see here from Operation World, we're praying for Morocco and Myanmar, and we discover some of the persecution that happens there. All who live godly lives will suffer persecution. Joy and woe are woven fine, a clothing for the soul divine. Under every grief a pine runs a joy with silken twine. Moving lines from William Blake's Auguries of Innocence. Blessed persecution? What? Well, when we're more like Jesus, when we're exemplifying kingdom living, when we're living counter-culturally, we're inviting persecution. Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the world said that, uh, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. The Beatitudes. Our relation to God, our relation to others, very parallel to the Mosaic Law in a lot of ways. Here we are in 2021. By God's design, you and I are alive right now, and God planned that on purpose. God knew that we'd be here dealing with all that we're dealing with, and His grace is sufficient for us, and it's, his mercy is enough for us, and his word is enough for us to live for his glory during these days that we're seeing unfold in front of us. Now, we have people that watch from other countries that watch us online. I'm, I'm going to speak specifically of a few of the challenges we have here in this nation. It's not my intent to fixate on culture. Uh, Y'all know that. I've been preaching here now for a couple of years, and you know I'm, I'm not going to fixate on culture. However, <laughs> however, it's worth mentioning that the times, they are changing. Specifically, the pace of secular humanism that we're seeing unfold in front of us in this nation. Years ago, in an almost prophetic voice, George Barna, who has personally conducted tens of thousands of interviews and then read the data from hundreds of thousands more, said that the American dream was becoming, listen to this, governed by an ethos of entitlement, where a moral code was based on cultural standards, not absolute truth. The American dream was saying it's good to be spiritual but not religious, and living the good life means a life of leisure with all the comfort, all the convenience, and all the technology they want and having friends around them all the time. The American dream is turned into the pursuit of plentiful experiences with unrestrained choices and finally, being independent with a sense of control over everything we touch. Prophetic. He didn't claim to be a prophet. Our culture does not celebrate 
any of the characteristics that I've just read to you from our Lord. But you will not stand before culture on the day of judgment. You will stand before a glorious, reigning king who loves your soul more than culture. Jesus said in Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what would it profit a man if you gained the whole world? Can I say, not adding the scripture here, but if you gained everybody else's approval and forfeit your soul, what shall a man give in return for his soul? What does finding our life in Christ look like? Here it is, you ready? We're blessed. We're blessed. We're blessed. We know where we are absolutely bankrupt without him in our souls. We, we know what it means to be poor in spirit. We're blessed. We mourn sin's cost. We mourn with the persecuted. We mourn over loss and we are comforted. We're blessed. We walk in step with the Spirit, surrendered to the Lord's power, submitting to whatever comes our way, knowing that He's working all things out for our good. We are blessed. We know that our appetites have changed and that's evident that God is working in, in us, but we're satisfied with Jesus. We hunger and thirst after righteousness, poor, mourning, meek, hungry, blessed, 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 blessed. Because we're blessed, we're constantly being cleansed by him. We have this growing desire for holiness that sets us as a bunch of weirdos, I'm sorry, from the rest of culture. Because radical purity isn't so radical to us, it's just becoming the norm. We, we want a purity that keeps us sensitive to sin. We're blessed. We're merciful, forgiving. We take action. We're blessed. We're peacemakers, not strife stirrers. We're blessed. And because we are the righteousness of God on display, we expect persecution. We are blessed, pure, blessed, merciful, blessed peacemakers, blessed persecuted that's about as countercultural as you can get y'all I can hear Adrian Rogers in that thundering booming voice up here saying this the thing that makes the church distinct is that she's different <laughs> think about it this isn't an instruction manual for winning God's favor this is a description of how the Lord has marked his children to live in a fallen world. And there could be no greater insult to a Christian, no greater cut to a believer than these words from an unbeliever. You're no different from anybody else. You're just like me. Mm. How can that be when we've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son? Julia's coming to play and give us a moment just to pray and reflect on the word today. Just a moment to spend time with God and recognize that we, the children of God, are blessed in this broken world. We've been approved, accepted, 
We're part of the family of God, and yet that marks us out as charting a different course than society and culture. My prayer for you this week is you take time to dive into each one. I would take a day with each one, poor in spirit, and I'd spend the day looking up scriptures. If you've got a reference Bible, follow your references. I'll post a few things this week that might be helpful to you on our website, but take the tools that you have. Study God's word. See what poor in spirit means. See what meekness means. Look at how Jesus exemplified these and fix your eyes on him. My prayer for you this week is that you would know the blessing of being called to live for Jesus. It's such a time as this. Let's pray. As we prepare our hearts for communion, Father, we come to you now asking you to have your way with us, to rule and to reign in our lives so that you are Lord and Master. Take this act of worship now that we enter into as the church and be blessed. Stir us in Christ's name, amen.